Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AAA wants Australians to know, understand and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. As always, you're with Darren Lim from the School of Politics and International Relations at the Australian National University and Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. Hi again, Alan. Hey, Darren. It's Monday the 3rd of August today, and boy, are we behind on the news. In our last episode on the news, I mentioned the Defence Strategic Update and Hong Kong as stories that we would not have time to discuss that day. But for today, we're going to have to begin with US-China tensions and what these mean for Australia in which we'll also fold in a discussion of the recent OSMIN consultations in Washington and also Prime Minister Morrison's virtual summit with the Japanese Prime Minister. We'll then follow that with a defence strategic update discussion, pairing that with recently announced cuts to DFAT's budget. I don't think we'll have time for Hong Kong today, but I promise we will return to it in a future episode as it's obviously not going away as an issue. But to begin with a headline, if I can, in the New York Times on the 25th of July, which I think says it all. The headline is, quote, Officials push US-China relations to the point of no return. And it has been a dark month for the most important bilateral relationship on the planet. Washington ordered Beijing to close its consulate in Houston, alleging it was the center of illegal espionage activities, and Beijing reciprocated by closing the US's Chengdu consulate. Prior to this, in early July, the US announced sanctions targeted at Chinese officials for human rights abuses against Muslim Uyghurs in Xinjiang, and one of those sanctioned is a CCP secretary in Xinjiang, and also sits on the 25-member ruling Politburo, the central governing organ of the country. Washington also revoked Hong Kong's special trading and diplomatic status following the imposition of the national security law laid criminal charges against members of the Chinese military for lying about their status in the US, and made a declaration that Chinese claims over the South China Sea were illegal, something the Australian government would make their own announcement on, which we'll get to in a bit. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo then gave a very dark speech in which he said, quote, the free world must triumph, end quote, over the tyranny of the CCP, declared the strategy of engagement to be a failure, and appeared, you could say, to call for regime change inside of China. Unsurprisingly, the Chinese side also ramped up its rhetoric in response, although they've been a bit more measured in the last few weeks. Just in the past week, we've had further sanctions arising over abuses in Xinjiang, and President Trump has also suggested that the administration might take action against the Chinese app TikTok, although I'm not sure what's happening there at this very moment. Alan, let's begin with a wide-angle lens here. Like, What's going on? What's your assessment of the causes behind this sudden trend downward? I think there are some cyclical issues which are overlying a secular trend, if you like. The cyclical issues include the US elections and Trump's hope that China will be a winning issue for him, despite the confused strategies he's followed so far. He's clearly hoping to blame it for the pandemic and the deteriorating economy. 
And then on the Chinese side, you have particular Chinese actions, especially the security legislation in Hong Kong and a more confrontational diplomatic style. Both these things are providing new reasons for concern about the speed and confidence with which Beijing is pursuing its strategic objectives, although you'd have to say that those objectives themselves, whether it's control of Hong Kong or Taiwan or the South China Sea, haven't changed. And the secular trend, of course, is the recognition on both sides of politics in the US that China's growing power could eventually challenge American strategic primacy, and on China's side, that the path ahead will be more contested than they expected. So as a result of this, the American language, as you were saying with the Pompeo speech, has become darker and more confrontational. In some ways, it even seems to go beyond US positions during the, the Cold War. Taking Ronald Reagan's famous phrase about the Soviet Union, trust but verify, for example, Pompeo paints China in an even worse light than the USSR by saying distrust and verify. And all that's part of what looks like a considered effort to delegitimize the Chinese government by talking instead about the Chinese Communist Party. Yeah, yeah, I agree with all that, Alan. You won't be surprised that I think the electoral motivation is perhaps the decisive factor here. Though I also find quite believable reports that there is a group of extreme China hawks inside the Trump administration who are trying to do as much damage as they can to the relationship in anticipation of losing in November and therefore make it harder for a Biden administration to restore any sense of normalcy. As you also said, it's important, I think, to note China's role in all this. If the US was being run by a quote-unquote normal administration, many of these actions would not be a surprise given China's behaviour and Hong Kong is front and centre of all this and the overall tone of the wolf warrior diplomacy. You know, we should expect some pushback from the West. It's just unfortunate that it's coming from an administration with no credibility abroad, and where, of course, the first thing the rest of us think about is going to be electoral politics when watching what they're doing. And once you believe that the administration is motivated just by politics, it's hard to assess the merits of what they're doing you know, separately from that. I think my point here is that if you saw these actions from a normal administration, you wouldn't be surprised. And ideally, you would expect allies and partners to have been brought in, and it would be the latest phase in a long-run strategy. But of course, we don't have that, and it's quite frustrating. For example, late last week, the Trump administration announced it will sanction the Xinjiang Production and Construction Corps. And while we're getting a bit out of my expertise here, my understanding is that this XPCC is a kind of paramilitary organisation that dominates both the economy and politics in Xinjiang and is thus a central player in all the bad things that are happening there in the internment camps. And I'll post a link to a New York Times report from December of last year where the reporters visited a place controlled by XPCC and found internment camps, a raised village, and a high-tech forensic DNA lab. So these sanctions are a win for human rights advocates, but that conversation gets overshadowed because it's the Trump administration taking the actions and there is just so little trust that what they are doing is done for appropriate motives and part of a coherent strategy behind 
their foreign policy. But any, Alan, can I talk about the closure of the consulate in particular? Pompeo called Houston a, a hub of spying and intellectual property theft. What are the types of reasons why consulates are ordered closed? And, and is the administration's logic sufficient justification in this case? Let's not be naive about this. All governments conduct both their public and their secret operations out of diplomatic premises. But whatever activities the Chinese were undertaking in the United States, we know that much of the intellectual property theft was the result of cyber operations rather than consular officials in balaclavas breaking into <laughs> downtown offices. So I suspect Houston just seemed the right size and importance to send a political message, but without the impact of closing, say, San Francisco. The more usual course would have been to simply expel individual diplomats for what's euphemistically described as behaviour incommensurate with their diplomatic status, but the Americans clearly wanted a bigger disruption. These sort of tit-for-tat closures are a reminder of how like the Cold War this period is becoming. Mm. As I said before, my problem here is what's the strategy here? Like, What's the goal? What happens next? The Chinese government, as I said, made the reciprocal gesture by closing the US's Chengdu consulate. So what does Trump do now? I mean, he can do the loud, tough-seeming, publicity-generating actions, but seems both uninterested and unable to do the painstaking diplomatic and foreign policy work needed as part of any long-term strategy. And the other dimension, of course, is Trump himself. We haven't talked, I don't think, Alan, about the book that was written by the former National Security Advisor John Bolton. But one of the most explosive accusations in that book is that Trump gave the green light to Xi Jinping at the G20 meetings in 2019 to continue building concentration camps in Xinjiang, and that Trump has said something similar in 2017 as well. So, you know, when the president is doing one thing and then he does the exact opposite thing and then the administration does something else, there's just no consistency, no credible message here about what is acceptable and unacceptable behavior. The kind of message you're trying to send by closing a consulate, you know, it's completely lost. So I guess that leads me to my next question, Alan. How much does all this matter given there is an election coming? To what extent are these measures ones of no return? to refer to the New York Times headline? Or, or could they be reversed under a Biden administration? Uh, the general policy won't be reversed under a Biden administration. A concern about China is one of the few points of bipartisan agreement across the deeply divided American polity. And it's not just the political and defence and security establishments. The, you know, the big difference is that the powerful US business community frustrated by property theft and difficulty of making money inside China has just ceased to be a lobbyist for the relationship. But if there is change in Washington, for all the reasons you've just been explaining about Trump, I would expect US policy to become more coherent, hard to imagine it being less so. So the same general strategic and economic policies, but expressed and implemented with greater focus and unity across government, I'd guess. But I do think there's going to be one important change. I reckon a Biden administration is likely to have a more progressive 
international agenda than Obama's, and this will be partly because of the influence of the Warren Sanders elements in the party. So I'm thinking of things like climate change and other aspects of multilateral activity. So compared with Trump, who's been trashing organisations like the WTO and withdrawing from the WHO, Biden will want to make the international system work better rather than gum it up completely. And that will inevitably require some degree of closer collaboration with China and maybe even a shared agenda in some areas. So that should make life easier for Australian policymakers. So if that's right, Alan, and Biden is elected and what you just described happens, including, as you say, some degree of closer collaboration with China and perhaps even a shared agenda. Does that mean this era is is less like the Cold War, in, you know, the comparison with the Cold War you made earlier? In other words, how much of the Cold War is just a product of Trump and tr- the Trump administration and how much of it is a product of, of everything else? Very good question, Darren. Until quite recently, the conventional wisdom among the commentariat, and, you know, hand up, but it included me, (laughs) uh, was that comparison with the first Cold War was mistaken because this time the two sides were so deeply intertwined economically through trade and finance that there was no equivalent of the sort of iron curtain divide between between the West and East during the first Cold War. But as the process of technological decoupling has gathered momentum, largely as a result of American actions, uh, most recently you mentioned TikTok at the beginning, it's possible to see another bipolar world emerging, and that would be very bad news for Australia. But I guess I have enough faith in the competence of the American officials who might end up in senior roles in a Biden administration to still believe that that sort of outcome can be avoided. And on the Chinese side too, I hope that the experience of the past four years, and I don't just mean with the Trump administration, but the sort of reactions that they've been getting from other significant powers will have had a sobering impact in Beijing as well. So I still cherish a spark of optimism that what will certainly be a more competitive relationship can be prevented from descending into a Cold War. Yeah, well, I may regret saying this, but I think now is the time we need to remember that Trump's election was really a fluke, a random event. You know, the structural factors that made possible the election of someone like Trump were and remain real, you know, populism, economic and cultural grievances, racism, the trajectory of the Republican Party. But, but he himself, you know, the sequence of events that brought him in particular and all of his baggage to the White House That was random, for me anyway. And even though such an event can cause permanent changes, a random event that lasts for four years is still a random event, at least until the next election. On a recent episode of one of our favourite podcasts, Alan, The Ezra Klein Show, Klein was doing a listener questions episode, and he was asked about his recent book on polarisation and specifically whether anything had happened following COVID-19 and the George Floyd killing that surprised him in light of the argument's main book about the structural drivers of polarisation in the US. And in answering the question, the first thing Klein said was, quote, Donald Trump is such a disaster of a person to have in the Oval Office. In a crisis like this, 
but I'm not sure what we can say structurally from him, end quote. So if we look at the polls now, Alan, you know, Trump trails Biden in national polls by about eight points. Biden is above 50% already in most polls. Trump is at a net you know, negative 13.5 points in favorability. And The Economist, who's already got a model for this, is putting a, a Biden victory at over 90% likelihood based on everything we know now. Now, of course, I am quite aware that some will call my attitude Pollyanna-ish or worse. And if we, if he does win, then we will enter into a, a darker world, an even more darker world. But especially in the final few months of a campaign where the economy is just tanked and contracted by 30% at an annualized rate in the last quarter, where 150,000 people have died, I just don't think we can say anything structurally about the state of world politics by extrapolating from Trump and the Trump administration's behaviour in this time. Oh, it's that 10% I'm worried about, though, Darren. <laughs> that brings us to this past week's Osmin meetings. And before we get to these, though, it's worth noting that the Australian government wrote a letter to the United Nations on the 23rd of July saying that China's territorial claims were inconsistent with the 1982 UNCLOS Treaty, rejecting in particular Beijing's claim to its historic rights. And as Beck Strating notes in a great piece for the Lowy Interpreter, the Australian government not only made statements regarding the 2016 tribunal decision, which gave the Philippines a legal victory over China, it also rejected claims made by Beijing that were not tested in that ruling. The timing of the announcement is what's interesting to me, coming after the US had made its own declaration, but before Australia's foreign and defence ministers arrived in Washington for Osmin. In July, naval vessels also joined with the US and Japanese counterparts in the Philippine Sea for some joint training exercises. However, the government has so far resisted calls from Washington, including on the eve of Osmin, to participate in freedom of navigation exercises in the South China Sea, though claiming the right to do so. In his biography, former PM Malcolm Turnbull said that he had never sent warships into the 12-mile limit of the island features because of fears the US would back down and China would not. So, Alan, I'm curious, can we start with this, with the Morrison government's letter on the South China Sea? Would you agree that the timing of this is rather loaded, even if this was the culmination of a lengthy internal legal process? Following so closely after the Washington statement means the world is going to interpret it as being linked. Do you agree or, or is there something else going on here? Well, it, it wasn't so much an internal development as the culmination of a United Nations process that began with exchanges between Malaysia and China in December last year to the UN Commission on the Limits of the Continental Shelf, which is part of the framework of the Convention on the Law of the Sea. Vietnam, Indonesia, the Philippines and the United States all subsequently made their own positions on the dispute clear in statements to the UN. So those proceedings were, I think, much more important than the timing of Osmin, although it's entirely possible the government wanted to get it out in advance of Osmin. The note repeats long-standing Australian positions on the legal situation in the South China Sea, but it 
does so more comprehensively than in any preceding document. It still doesn't change, though, the underlying Australian position that we don't take sides on the specific claims to particular physical territory there. You ask how it can best be read. I think it can best be read in terms of Australian support for the other Southeast Asian claimants against the sweeping territorial claims of China, especially the Nine-Dash line. Mm. Thanks, Alan. That clarifies things, though. It does seem to me that regardless of the independent timing in the world we're living in, both Beijing and Washington will invariably view actions like these through the lens of their own rivalry. But I guess there's not much we can do about that. That brings us to this past week's OSMIN meetings, the annual meetings of Australia's foreign and defence ministers with their US counterparts. Maybe the most significant aspect of OSMIN this year was the fact that it happened in person, despite the COVID-19 pandemic. At the joint press conference, the first thing that Secretary Pompeo said was to thank Ministers Payne and Reynolds for travelling to Washington and noting that the entire delegation would need to quarantine when they returned to Australia. Not many partners will do that for us, he said. So, Alan, my first question is, how do you understand the Australian side's decision to travel, given the costs and risks that it entailed? Well, it was interesting. Osmin has, in fact, often been delayed in the past because of conflicting commitments by one side or the other. And if ever there was a reason to postpone the meeting or or to make it virtual, the pandemic and the need for two weeks isolation by key ministers at the end was surely it. But even so, it went ahead. So you have to assume that either the pressure from Washington for them to turn up was intense, although I note that in some of the press reporting that's been denied. And in any case, it wouldn't have been sufficient. So, you know, best guess is that the Australian side wanted to make a point about the alliance and probably a point to both Washington and Beijing. I wonder if delay wasn't really feasible this time around in the sense that it's unlikely COVID-19 is going to get better in the US in the short term. And you then you have Trump hosting the G7 in September and then the election in November. So maybe it had to happen now, whether virtually or not. Reading the joint statement, a couple of things jumped out at me. First, it felt like Australia got quite a lot out of the decision to travel. You know, the first section is about the Indo-Pacific recovery. And the first substantive paragraph of that is about the World Health Assembly resolution on COVID. And remember, the Trump administration is trying to withdraw from the WHO. So I think that's notable. And the second paragraph begins that the parties, quote, reaffirmed that the Indo-Pacific is the focus of the alliance, end quote, which I read as the US endorsing Australia's defence strategic update that we'll get to in a moment. Then the third, fourth and fifth paragraphs are about economic recovery in the region, with a specific focus on the Pacific and on the Pacific Islands Forum. And then, of course, we turn to the section on Indo-Pacific security. But before we get there, to me, this first section reads like a list of clear Australian priorities. Would you agree, Alan, that perhaps reflecting the effort that Australia went simply to make the meeting gave us a bit more bargaining leverage in the the language of the statement? Well, look, maybe, but the protocol governing communiques like this is that the initial draft is prepared by the home side and then negotiated with the visitor. So this would 
probably have been a US structure with textual amendments from the Australian side. And if you look carefully enough at the document, I think you can see places where negotiation took place. Well, that that's a tantalising statement, Alan, for someone like me who who doesn't have experience negotiating these documents. Those places aren't nearly as obvious to me. But you know, from my view, the first section reads like it was drafted by an Australian, while the second section clearly looks like it was drafted by the Americans. And that's because it's on the topic of security and where China is the central focus. The section begins with concerns that the pandemic is creating opportunities for some actors to pursue strategic gains and proceeds through the Hong Kong national security law, repression of the Uyghurs, Taiwan, notable because it didn't appear in last year's statement, and of course the South China Sea. The two countries also reaffirm the significant role of the United Nations and other key international organisations, call out malicious activity in cyberspace, and announce a new working group to monitor and respond to disinformation. In the defence realm, maybe the most significant announcement was the establishment of a US-funded, commercially operated strategic military fuel reserve in Darwin, which was framed as strengthening resilience of supply chains. What was not in the statement was any mention of the Middle East or Afghanistan. Alan, anything on this list jump out at you as being particularly notable? Like you, what struck me was the overall focus on China and almost nothing else. As you said, compared with the recent past, the Middle East and terrorism were largely ignored. It seems an awfully long time since an Australian Defence Minister was declaring that the peace and security of the Middle East were matters of vital Australian national interest. New issues like Taiwan and supply chains made an appearance. But if you want to understand the scale of the change, it's worth noting that just two years ago, with the same governments in both countries, the Osmin communique noted that both Australia and the United States, quote, continue to place a high priority on constructive and beneficial engagement with China, close quote. Nothing, nothing like that now. The statement contrasts with the press conference where, as Stephen Jedgett's highlighted in a piece for the ABC, Pompeo mentioned the Chinese government nine times in less than three minutes while Payne mentioned China once, criticism over the crackdown in Hong Kong, in her five minutes of remarks, otherwise giving a, and this is Jejitz's words, a quiet defence of multilateralism and cooperation. Stephen's argument is that there was a clear rhetorical gap between the two sides through which Australia was trying to demonstrate its independence. Alan, who is the primary audience for such a demonstration of independence? Is it Beijing or Washington? And what's your overall assessment of the meeting in the context of Australia's attempts to navigate its relationships with its two great and powerful friends? I think there were probably four audiences for Senator Payne's words. One was the Australian public, second was Beijing, and third and fourth were the Republican and Democratic camps in Washington. Those remarks you, you quoted clearly designed to distance Australian policy to some degree from that of the Trump administration. And that's certainly how they were briefed to the media, including obviously to Stephen. But at the same time, she was doing it from a platform with the US Secretary of State and thereby sending a message to Beijing about where our core security interests lie. 
Yeah, after thinking about this for a few days, I've settled on the conclusion that it was the right decision to go, simply because the act of going, aside from the personal risk and inconvenience to the individuals themselves, was a a low-cost way of giving something to Washington that it wanted, the in-person meeting itself, while also creating some space to distance ourselves on the dimensions of the administration's China policy that we are not comfortable with not just rhetorically in the press conference, but in practice with our refusal or reluctance to engage in phone ops in the South China Sea. Alan, before we move on, Prime Minister Morrison also held a virtual summit with the Japanese Prime Minister Abe on the 9th of July. According to Morrison's press release, the leaders discussed the need for effective multilateral cooperation to fight COVID, including the importance of transparency, a commitment to economic recovery, including energy transitions and digital transformations, reliable supply chains and effective cybersecurity, and a shared vision for the future of the region. My colleague at the ANU, Rory Medcalf, wrote in the Australian Financial Review that Japan, quote, can lay claim to being Australia's closest friend in Asia, end quote. And this, of course, is backed up by Lowy polling, in which a whopping 82% of Australians say they'd expect Japan to act responsibly in the world. Alan, just a quick comment here. What jumped out at you from this bilateral meeting? And can I frame it this way? What does it mean for a country to be Australia's best friend at the moment? Is it the depth of practical cooperation? Is it the expectation of support in the broadest number of scenarios? Or is it some visceral sense of comfort and amity? It reflects the the fundamental alignment of Australian and Japanese economic and strategic interests in this part of the world. I think it was Tony Abbott who first described Japan as Australia's best friend in Asia. And that's the result of a long relationship where both sides have worked seriously to develop trust and understanding, backed as united by broad public support and by a deep business relationship as well. It's been helped by the continuity that comes from what to all practical purposes has been a one-party government in Japan and from strong bipartisan agreement in Australia. And, you know, with my, my historian's hat on, it's a reflection of how the world changes because even in my own lifetime, I can remember the animosity and fear that still marked Australian attitudes towards Japan during my boyhood. So I do think the development of the relationship with Japan has been one of the outstanding achievements of Australian foreign policy over 50 years, and the Morrison-Abe summit was a reminder of that fact. Okay, well, let's move on to our final item, which is the Defence Strategic Update and DFAT. It does seem a long time ago already, but... The update was announced by the Prime Minister and the Defence Minister on the 1st of July. The document seeks to respond to, quote, the most consequential strategic realignment in our region since World War II, end quote. And perhaps the best way to sum up the update is this quote from the document itself. It is the government's intent that Australia take a greater responsibility for our own security. Of course, the one metric that demonstrates commitment is money, and indeed the government allocated $270 billion extra for acquisitions and capability development over the next 10 years. Now, Alan, our last defence white paper is only a year older than the foreign policy white paper. It came out in 2016. And we, of course, have talked many times about how much the world has changed from a foreign policy perspective since then. 
And I've certainly wondered whether a new foreign policy white paper is needed. So can you put this update in context for us to begin? What's its significance and how should we read it alongside the current defence white paper? I think you just explained it, Darren, really. In, In the face of all that's happened since 2016, the government needed, obviously, to revisit some of the assumptions in the defence white paper. But the middle of a pandemic is clearly not the time to undertake a fundamental white paper style review. So this was a a shorter, sharper update designed to coordinate the government's own thinking, to give guidance to the ADF and to make some adjustments to the defence procurement program. Can you say a bit more about what you mean by a white paper style review, Alan? I imagine... The consultation process, getting buy-in from across all the government would have been less here. I mean, is this a purer distillation of defence's thinking than might be the case in a, in a more negotiated white paper, or am I completely off base here? Well, well, maybe. Defence's voice is always the most powerful in the preparation of defence white papers. They control the drafting through the whole process, although it's uh, funneled through the National Security Committee of Cabinet. But the defence update would have gone through the uh, NSC as well. What I really meant was that the range of uncertainties now from the future of the US-United States, will there be a Biden administration at the end of the year or a second Trump, right through to the Australian budgetary outlook is so the uncertainty is so great at the moment that it makes little sense even to pretend to project forward very far. So even so, the the government wanted to send a couple of clear messages about its commitment to defence and to make some adjustments, as I said before, to the defence procurement program. Should there be a a foreign policy strategic update, Alan? Should we enter a world where we just do short shorter updates that don't project forward far since doing so is so hard i've always i think we lucked out in the 2017 foreign policy white paper i think it came at the right moment it was written by the right people and it gave us a framework which has endured i think it'll be enormously difficult to do the same thing now covid has really changed the world but in directions which are absolutely not clear at the moment. So I repeat that I don't think this is the time to be doing any large-scale projections forward. But that's the thing. I guess you'd do it just for a short period of time or maybe just simply state how you view the world at this point in time. But anyway, let's move on to the update. There is a clear regional focus and the update declares, quote, Australia's ability and willingness to project military power and deter actions against us, end quote. Sam Rogovine of Lowy wrote that the document was almost shocking in its pessimism about the new dangers to Australia's security. What are your big takeaways, Alan, about how the government views the strategic environment and, and what they propose to do about it? The strategic picture that PM painted was, as Sam said, pessimistic. He described a post-COVID world that is poorer, more dangerous and more disorderly. He saw the institutions and patterns of cooperation that have benefited our prosperity and security for decades, I'm quoting him here, as being under what he termed almost irreversible strain. You know, that's a big claim. And the Indo-Pacific, he said, was going to become the epicentre of rising strategic competition with the risk of miscalculation and conflict growing. 
Now, listeners to the pod won't be surprised that we would agree with the PM that these are unprecedented mm-hmm. and difficult times for Australia. Though, in terms of preferred historical parallels, I worry more about the period before 1914 than the 1930s that he pointed to. He announced that the ADF would have a sharper focus on the geographic region from the northeast Indian Ocean through Southeast Asia to PNG and the Southwest Pacific. And he basically reaffirmed in the face of the current economic uncertainty, a continued commitment to the sort of money committed in the 2016 Defence White Paper with adjustments that will see capability investment grow, as you said, by 270 million over the next decade. And that commitment is a big thing to do, given what we know is about to happen to the Australian economy. It includes improving the ADF's capacity to grow its self-reliant ability to deliver deterrent efforts. That's what how it was described, and that basically means long-range strike capabilities, basically missiles, and a much greater focus on cyber capabilities. The objective, and this was interesting really, the objective of keeping the defence budget at around 2% of GDP was abandoned because 2% of the Australian budget in the years going forward is likely to see a decline rather than the increases that we've been used to seeing. Yeah, that is interesting. This, of course, brings us then to DFAT. Just a few weeks following the Defence Strategic Update, government announced a downsizing DFAT with 60 positions being cut, 10 of which will come from overseas posts. Now, while DFAT has done an amazing job under incredible amounts of pressure during the COVID-19 crisis, the government seems to be okay with a further erosion of Australia's diplomatic footprint. Data from the Lowy Institute indicates that we rank 27th globally in terms of diplomatic resources spent, while we rank 13th in military expenditure. We have, of course, the world's 14th largest economy. Now, of course, our listeners are going to expect us to be critical of these cuts, Alan, and I certainly think they are a mistake. Well, they're not cuts, critical of this downsizing, and I certainly think that this is a mistake. And I do think that Australia's national interests would be better served by a major upgrade of our diplomatic capabilities. But for the purposes of making this podcast interesting, I've been trying to come up with a devil's advocate argument for you to shoot down. So here we go. And to be clear, I'm not endorsing this. This is just me as a devil's advocate. If the government is truly concerned that China poses a major military threat to the region, then given our middling size and taking nuclear weapons off the table... There is only one pathway to generate the kind of deterrent that would give Beijing pause, and that would be the formation of what IR scholars call a balancing coalition, where, if not all, at least most of the states in the region are aligned together somehow and make it clear to China that major changes to the territorial status quo are unacceptable. History suggests that the more powerful and more threatening a state becomes, the more likely such balancing coalitions do form in response. The major impediment, though, to such a coalition forming in this instance would be a lack of faith in the United States' resolve to play a major part. After all, you're taking on China without Washington's help, and indeed its leadership would be a very risky proposition. So what can Australia do then, both to help keep 
Washington credibly committed, but also to demonstrate our commitment to the defence of the region. So my devil's advocate argument is to do exactly what has been foreshadowed by the update, make additional investments in defence and restructure our capabilities to emphasise long-range strike capabilities. What this does is begin the long process of demonstrating Australia's commitment to regional security and perhaps maybe helps provide new ballast for sustained US involvement. And this latter point draws upon a piece that Zach Cooper and Charles Adele wrote in Foreign Policy recently, that the update would ideally provide the impetus for Washington to devote more resources to Asia, intensify its capability deployment with its allies, and clarify geographic priorities across alliances. So the argument boils down to this idea, Alan. If we assume the long-term goal of creating a deterrent to the use of military force, then at the margins, an additional dollar spent on the plans laid out in the update provides relatively more value than an additional dollar spent on diplomacy. In other words, our strategic landscape is one where potential partners and adversaries are paying more attention to hard-edged actions in the defence policy space than in the diplomatic space. That's the best argument I could come up with. So I'll pass it over to you to comment, Alan, both on the downsizing itself and also what I've just said to you. Uh, Good try. Uh, (laughs) The problem, I think, is that you frame this in terms of trade-off between military expenditure and diplomacy. You talk about two different spaces, the defence policy space and the diplomatic space. And I just don't see that clear distinction. Foreign policy is the part of statecraft that manages differences and builds alignments between states in the international order. It's the essential means by which we do a number of the things that contribute to the balancing coalitions you speak of. And through trade and economic diplomacy, it also underpins the economic foundation, which is just fundamental to our capacity to develop our own defence capability. Defence expenditure provides us with the instruments of deterrence and war fighting, very necessary, I'm all in favour, but expenditure on foreign policy and diplomacy, which is foreign policy's operating system, provides us with the knowledge and tools required to persuade others. And look, Honestly, foreign policy is a very minor expenditure compared with defence. I note that the increase in the size of the ADF announced in the defence update alone is about the size of the entire Australian diplomatic service. Mm, that's all very fair, Alan. But it does, it does suggest to me one answer, at least, about why successive governments have been unpersuaded to give a big funding boost to Australian diplomacy. You are obviously right that foreign policy and diplomacy do a number of things that contribute towards national security outcomes, whether balancing coalitions or others. But, And I'm still wearing my devil's advocate hat here. Recognising that truth does not automatically mean that spending more on diplomacy will strengthen the security outcome. A defence planner can come along and say, If we spend this much extra money, buy this equipment and deploy it like this, it will send a new concrete message to the region about our intentions on this most important security question. And so as devil's advocate, I'm saying it's harder to come up with a similarly 
pithy pitch which says to a government, spend this much extra on diplomacy and here is the concrete message you'll be sending to the region about this most important question. You will be sending a message about your commitment to engagement, but maybe not as compelling as a concrete pathway to security. I mean, does that make sense? Well, you know, quite possible, but it's equally hard to argue that every additional piece of equipment that a defence planner might want to purchase will have that clear and direct messaging effect that you speak of. And in any case, we're only talking about traditional security threats here. Last time we were reviewing the latest Lowy poll, we noted that Australians are even more concerned about non-traditional security threats, including pandemics and climate change, and viruses and the biosphere are not susceptible to deterrence, only to coordinated action, and Mm. that's where diplomacy comes in again. Amen, Alan. Okay, well, let's move to our final segment, reading, listening and watching. What have you got for us this week? Look, if you're listening to this podcast, we assume you're interested in foreign policy or you wouldn't have bothered. And like Darren and me, you might find it difficult sometimes to draw together the main components of government national security policy in any given week without spending too much time trawling around the various ministerial and departmental websites and official Twitter accounts. So to deal with this, the Australian Institute of International Affairs has launched a new feature on its Australian Outlook blog called The Week in Australian Foreign Policy. And its purpose is not to comment on the policies themselves. There are plenty of other places to do that, including right here. Instead, it will provide readers with direct links to the important foreign policy statements by ministers, departments, opposition spokespeople. It's part of Australia's mission with which you open the podcast, Darren, of helping Australians know more, understand more and engage more in international relations. And one of our brilliant young interns, Isabella Keith, is the first in what we hope will be a long line of compilers of this feature. Mm. That's going to be a terrific resource, Alan, and I'm glad the AIIA is stepping up on that. I'm afraid I haven't got anything nearly as professionally useful, but I have given some thought to today's recommendation and acknowledge that to the extent that I have a professional reputation, I might be about to explode it. But our listeners demand honesty, and so here we go. Some time ago, Alan, back in episode 20, you recommended the latest album by the American group The National called I Am Easy to Find. Well, I want to draw your attention today to a recent COVID-19 lockdown collaboration by the Nationals guitarist, Aaron Dessner, with a younger singer-songwriter that you might have heard of in passing, Alan, but whose music may be less familiar to you. Her name is Taylor Allison Swift, and she has just released an album called Folklore, in which Dessner co-wrote and produced over half the songs. While Ms. Swift is known for her contributions to country music and pop, folklore is actually much closer to the Nationals' sort of own indie genre, if a bit more folk 
compared to the Nationals rock and also includes a notable duet with Justin Vernon, who is the lead singer of Bon Iver. So this is why I'm recommending it to you, Alan. You know, I've long been a fan, personally, of, of Ms. Swift's records, and some listeners may know the song all too well, which is my personal favourite. But regardless of whether you are already a fan, Alan, I give this particular album my highest recommendation. It is perfect winter listening by the fire amid the terror of a global pandemic. <laughs> Have I convinced you to check it out? You have convinced me to check it out immediately after this, uh, Darren. <laughs> okay, well, that's all for today's episode of Australia in the World. We thank AIIA intern Mitchell McIntosh for research and audio editing, XC Chung for some research support, and, of course, Rory Stenning for composing our theme music. Thank you and talk to you all again soon.